So we've arrived to lesson number 19. So I say lesson because we're doing a chronological journey through the Gospels. I'm taking all four Gospels, meshing them together, attempting to go in chronological order as things happened in Scripture. We spent a lot of time over the last month or more in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all of them kind of telling the same story. We've looked at, you know, maybe one section we'd look at Matthew and then we'd look at Luke and then we'd look at Mark. They're all telling the same events and just kind of highlighting some of the accounts of Jesus's first year of ministry. But last week we crossed over a milestone in the sense of, especially today here in John chapter five, and we haven't been in the gospel of John for a while. We'll be here for two weeks and then we'll go back to the synoptic gospels. But here in John chapter five, and technically last week, but I, if you remember, I put it a little out of order. Our third point last week should actually follow John chapter 5. But if I would have taken us to John chapter 5, it would have been a very long sermon. So I kind of held back until today and even next week. So breaking the 47 verses of John 5 into two sections but this is the beginning of the second year of Jesus' ministry, his year of popularity, it's known as. But we'll also see in this chapter that it becomes a time when the religious rulers not only seek to confront Jesus, they will want to kill him. And so plotting here really increases because of what we're going to look at here in John chapter 5, verses 1 through 23 where Jesus on a Sabbath day heals a man who had been sick for 38 years. And as a result of that healing on the Sabbath day and the command of Jesus to this man to take up your mat and go home, to rise up and walk, take your mat, go home. They first of all accused the man of working on the Sabbath. It's like, why are you carrying your mat? You're not supposed to do that. You know the rules. You know the law. And the man responding, the man who healed me told me to do so. So I'm carrying my mat. I've been sick for 38 years. He said, carry your mat. I'm carrying my mat. And then they no longer concerned about the man. Then they said, who is the man? And we'll discover that he didn't know Jesus' name. I find some amazing things in this chapter and two things that I discovered, and one of them didn't even get in my notes. But as I continue to go over this and prepare for the teaching, the two things we discover is twice the Lord Jesus sought out this man. The man was not seeking Jesus, but twice Jesus found the man. And as a result of that, that man was not only physically healed, he was also spiritually healed. And I think that's important because sometimes we think if we'd only get our life straightened out, we get our act together, we come to church, we uh, acknowledge God, you will discover often that once you get to church, once you receive Jesus, you'll look back and discover that, you know, Jesus had been seeking me out even before I knew it. He had actually touched me here. He had met me here even before I knew really who Jesus is. And so today we're going to look at a 
message I entitled Great and Greater Works, uh, Lesson 19 in our chronological journey through the gospel, but specifically looking at John chapter 5, verses 1 through 23. I have three points for this message because I'm trying to give you guys grace. I was doing four points. I figure one less point means that maybe I'll be five seconds shorter in my teaching. I don't know, but I'm trying. The points, do you want to be made well, verses 1 through 9. The second point, Jesus made him well, 10 through 16, and greater works, 17 through 23. I'll open us up with the context and then just briefly ask God again to bless the teaching of his word. In the context of verses 1 through 9, and our first point, do you want to be made well? After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep, sheep's gate, I shouldn't put an S on that, but sheep gate, a pool. In the Hebrew, it's called Bethsaida, having five porches. In these laid a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew he'd already been there in that condition a long time. He said to him, do you want to be made well? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. And Father, we ask that you would bless the teaching of your word. Open our hearts, Lord. Once again, open our hearts, Lord, to learn from your word today, to apply it to our lives, that we would have faith, that our faith would be strengthened for those, Lord, who need your healing touch, and I believe we all do, that you would touch us, perhaps asking us today, do you want to be made well? We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I'm just going to back up to last week and why I believe that our third point from last week was Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, and the disciples picked grain on the Sabbath. That's the title I gave that point last week, the disciples picked grain on the Sabbath. It's because of the word that Luke used, and the Greek word that he used, it's only found in the Texas Receptus, the Texas Receptus is the Greek translation that they use to translate the King James Bible from. And the Sabbath there is called the second first, the second first. We looked at this last week. It is significant uh, to point out here in John chapter 5, where in the first verse he mentions that there was a feast of the Jews, but they don't name the feast, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and so I believe, and the more I've studied, I believe that this feast was the Passover feast. It's unnamed to us here in John chapter 5, but the second first 
in Jewish tradition has them counting down the Sabbath's day from Passover to Pentecost, seven Saturdays, seven Sabbaths. And this is the second after the first Sabbath. That's basically what it means. And they were, Deuteronomy 16, 9 and 10, to count seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle into the grain and the feast of weeks and the beginning of the feast of weeks or feast of unleavened bread is that of Passover. Then you are to keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of the free will offering from your hand as given to the Lord that God would bless you. So if correct, this means that We have, I believe, if we put it in order, that Jesus not only healed on the Sabbath after this chapter, we technically should be in Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, where where his disciples were accused of harvesting, working on the Sabbath. We looked at that last week, but the second first. So there in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate, It's on the northeast corner of the wall. So if you look at the old city of Jerusalem, and uh, northeast would be that way. I know my directions, but you guys are standing to my southwest, so I'm pointing this way. Uh, But there in the northern portion, this was the gate that was primarily used for bringing the animals in for the sacrificial offerings. And that's why it, it had this name. And it's mentioned three other times in Scripture, all in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah 3.1, 3.32, 12.39. And that's the only time we find it referred to in Scripture, three times in the Old Testament and one time here in John's Gospel. And there was a pool of water there. To this day, there is a pool of water there. And you can go and visit this area. Uh, To this day, people don't wait around waiting for the water to be disturbed. But they will take you to a chapel just across the street that was built, a Christian chapel taken over by the Muslim, stripped of all of its ornate design on the inside to just bare stone and a great place to sing worship to God. And those stone really sound good when you worship in that church. There in Bethsaida, by this pool that's found in Jerusalem to this day. So traditionally, and John tells us through tradition, that there was a lot of people who were sick, and they were blind, lame, paralyzed. They waited for the moving of the water. The tradition was that every once in a while, an angel would come down, stir up the water, and that people, whoever was the first one to enter the water after the water was stirred, that person would be healed. Some Bible commentators discount this whole tradition. I have a hard time totally discounting it because if it didn't work, then why did people gather around all the time and wait for the stirring of the water? In fact, Hebrews 1.14 tells us concerning angels, they're asking a question, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation? I don't have a problem with angels doing great works in individual lives, whether believers or unbelievers. I think sometimes in my life that God has intervened through my guardian angel has saved us uh, from, saved us, Lily and I, one night for sure, from certain death while we were out on the motorcycle and would have been hit head on by a van who was very drunk, not the van, the driver. (laughs) 
but so bad that we could smell the alcohol in the air as he went by us. So that's pretty bad. And it just so happens that the light on my motorcycle went out at night. I pulled over. And as I pulled over on the side of the road, he pulled into our lane. And it would have been a head-on collision without any hope. So I have no doubt that they're there to give life, to save life in the sense of even healing. And I believe that there is the possibility. My argument would simply be if no one was healed at this pool of water, then why in the world would there be all around it sick people, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water? The important thing to remember, though, it's not the water that healed, but the faith of the individual. See, I also believe that people's faith, the tradition that came out of this was first one in was healed. And I believe the moment someone saw the first one in, everybody else gave up. This man gave up, did he not? Jesus said to the man, do you want to be made well? And what did the man do? He, all he could do is offer excuses. And the excuse was... Sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. I can envision this man struggling to get to the water. But as soon as he saw someone else enter in first, he probably never even touched the water. He gave up. He struggled back to wherever he would wait, back to his mat, and wait for the stirring of the water once again. This man, for 38 years, he understood, according to verse 14, that his sin had cost him dearly. In verse 14, Jesus would tell this man, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Now, I'm not saying that all illness is the result of sin, except for the fact that Adam and Eve were in the garden. They ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and sin came upon this earth. Death and sickness resulted from that. In a general sense, yes. But individual sin does not always cause sickness. We can be sick and have not sinned at all, as in John 9, 2 and 3, when the disciples asked Jesus after seeing a blind man, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents. We'll look at that further when we get to John 9. But what I want us to see, Jesus said, neither. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. God had a different purpose. For this, it would be the healing of this blind man who would later say, Though I was blind, now I see. So in a general sense, it's true. Because of the fall, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 6.23. And yet God's knowledge is connected with his watchful care over his eyes. Jesus sought out this man. He found him. He asked him, do you want to be made well? The man only offered him excuses. That sounds kind of like us sometimes, doesn't it? We know the right thing to do, but sometimes all we can do is offer excuses. We know what we should do. Perhaps scripturally we know what the word says, but all we can do is offer the Lord excuses. Why 
We won't get to the place where God would have us to be when the whole time the Lord is saying, do you want to be made well? I'm not asking for excuses. I'm asking you a question. Yes or no? Do you want to be made well? Of course, the answer would be yes. God's knowledge is connected, though, with his watchful care over our lives. Psalm 139, 1 through 3 says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down, my rising up. You understand my thoughts afar off. You comprehend my path, my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Jesus had a knowledge of this man. He saw many sick people there. He only came up, as far as we know, according to the word of God, he only came to one in that crowd, a man who had had an infirmity for 38 years. God's knowledge also is connected to his judgment. That is true. In Hebrews 4.13, it says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And even though this man has sinned, as verse 14 tells us, Jesus still came to him. He asked him, Do you want to be made well? The mercy of God. Even though this man was truly a sinner, as the religious rulers like to say often in the Gospels. He eats with tax collectors and sinners. He was a sinner. We all are. Jesus mercifully called out to him, do you want to be made well? All the man could do, as I mentioned before, was offer excuses. His excuse, I have no man, no one to help him to get to the healing waters they were always out of his reach. That's true spiritually for everyone in this world today. And there are those who are seeking help through other religions. And they're saying that I found a man or it could be a woman in other religions in the sense of I found my way to heaven apart from Christ. But in reality, we could all say we have no man. For there is only one Savior, Jesus Christ, through whom we not only have to give an account, but only through Jesus that we might be saved. And the man did not seek out Jesus, as I mentioned earlier. Jesus sought out this man, the man laying by the pool of Bethesda, with the healing waters just out of reach. It caused me to think of many people who sit in our churches today throughout the United States throughout the world. And perhaps they listen to the gospel in the church. They listen to social media or radio broadcast of the preaching of the word of God. Though they daily may receive encouragement from God's word, many never receive the salvation that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. To them, it's always just out of reach because they have not discovered that man they have no man. They have not looked to Jesus that they might be saved. The word of God tells us in 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, for there is only one God, one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. There's only one mediator, the man, Christ Jesus. So with this man, with all of us, obedience is key. In verses 8 and 9, Jesus told the man, rise up, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, 
So he felt strengthening in his body. He arose. He took up his bed. He walked. All in obedience to the command of Jesus. 1 Samuel 15:22 reminds us that to obey is better than sacrifice. All the Lord wants us to do is to walk in obedience with him. And so as a good author, John mentions the Sabbath day here in verse 9. And it was the Sabbath day to set us up really for the next section that would take place. So when it comes to our salvation, only one man will do Christ Jesus, our Lord. So 10 through 16, once again, I'll read the context for us here in John's gospel, chapter five, beginning in verse 10. And our point here, Jesus made him well. And the Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. And he answered and he said, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus hath withdrawn, and the multitude being in that place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. And the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. What a Sabbath day for this man. A day where he found healing, not only for his physical condition, but as we will see in this section for his spiritual state as well. What a Sabbath. And shouldn't it be, and Jesus would condemn the Jews that, saying that man, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. In a sense, the Jews had so destroyed the Sabbath that they made it a day of obligation, a day of works that God never intended for it to be, but a day of rest, a day of fellowship with God. And what better place to find healing from the Lord than a day of worshiping the Lord on the Sabbath? Now, here in America, we have a tradition because of the Lord Jesus resurrecting from the grave on the first day of the week. On Sunday, we gather together to worship on a Sunday. Sunday has become our Sabbath for us. And I have to tell you, every single Sunday, we gather together here as a fellowship, here at the church. And I've always felt this way for the last my time with this church, uh, 23, 24 years, maybe 23, I, I lose count, so I'll have to do the math later. I use my fingers when I do math. Um, on any Sunday, God is able to work. God is able to do great things far beyond what we would maybe think or expect of him. And on that Sabbath, this man was healed his body was strengthened it was a day of rejoicing for this man as he carried his mat i'm sure that after 38 years he probably made a little scene in that place he probably attracted attention to himself not just because he carried a mat but because he was probably praising god a little bit he's probably making some noise he might have been singing some praise and all the religious rulers could do was condemn 
They were constantly on the hunt for lawbreakers. Sadly, in the church today, we have those who are constantly on the hunt for lawbreakers. And usually it's because of the traditions that we have developed in our own churches. I don't want us to be that way. We should be constantly on the hunt for the Lord doing a great work in our midst. And when we see that work being done, we should celebrate with those individuals. Now, it's true, there was a law that they should not work on the Sabbath. Jeremiah 17, 21. And the Lord said, take heed to yourselves. Bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it in the gates of Jerusalem. So they accused him of bearing a burden, carrying his mat. When the religious rulers learned that the man was carrying his bed, they learned that he had been sick, he was healed. All they could concern themselves with was who was the man? Who was the one who commanded you to be a lawbreaker? Who told you that? Oh, you were healed? We could care less about that. You're breaking the law on the Sabbath. They had some strange Sabbath day laws. We'll look at that in a moment. That had developed around the Sabbath. And even with healing. In Luke 6 and 7, the scribes and Pharisees, they would watch Jesus closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might find accusation against him. At this point, they didn't know the name of Jesus, but they would soon learn the name of Jesus. And then every Sabbath, when they were around Jesus, they would watch him. Is he going to heal on the Sabbath? All they wanted to do was accuse. As we learned last week, the Son of Man, though, is the Lord of the Sabbath. Luke 6, 5. Once again, for a second time, we discover, verse 14, that Jesus found the man. When the religious rulers asked the man, who is the man, this man who told you to take up your mat? He says, I don't know. I don't see him. I just envision him looking around. They said there was a lot of people in that place. I envision him looking around. I don't know where he is. I don't see him anywhere. I didn't catch his name. And yet Jesus found him a second time. But look where he found him this time. The man is in the temple. He was healed. He went to church. For us today, we're better for those who have been touched by Jesus Christ to be than in the house of worship giving praise to God, offering sacrifices to God, being thankful to God for the mercy that they have received. And when Jesus found him there, verse 14, he said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. A few weeks ago, we looked at Jesus healing a paralytic in Mark chapter 2. And in that passage, in Mark chapter 2, verse 5, it tells us right before Jesus healed the paralytic man, the man had been carried to Jesus by the faith, uh, by four friends. And the word of God tells us that Jesus saw their faith and said to the man, rise up. It does not tell us that Jesus saw the faith of the paralytic. I don't even know if the paralytic believed at that point. But Jesus saw the faith of the four friends and said to that man, rise up. Take up your bed and walk, Mark 2, 9. 
Here Jesus first heals the man and then spiritually it seems that he touches him as well. In the other situation with the paralytic on the mat, Jesus first forgave the man, didn't heal him physically, first forgave the man and then said to him after the scribes and Pharisees began to complain among themselves about Jesus forgiving this man's sin, he told the man, take up your bed and walk. We have two different situations that reminds us that Christ does not work in our lives in the same way. Sometimes he might, and other times he might work differently. For one man, he first forgave his sins and then gave him physical healing. The spiritual became, came before the physical. In this situation, it seems that the physical came before the spiritual, but in both cases, Jesus worked both physically and spiritually in both of these men's lives. The importance for both of these men, Jesus said to this man in our text today, send no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. Both men were made whole, both physically and spiritually, and they were to strive for holiness. And we strive for holiness because 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 tells us, he who has called you is holy. You also be holy in your conduct because it is written, be holy because I am holy. We have a responsibility to strive for holiness. We also know, Lord, that we are all sinners. We're all sinners. And because of this, we have need for an advocate. We have need for a propitiation. <clears throat> we have need for an advocate. Advocate in the Greek, New Testament Greek, the Koine Greek that the New Testament was written in. That word for advocate is parakletos. It's found in 1 John 2, 1. If anyone sins, we have a paracletus. We have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, the righteous. The Greek word for paracletus means someone who comes alongside, someone who calls near. You're in trouble, you need help, you call someone near, they come to their, your aid to help. It's actually a legal term. Like a lawyer coming to your aid to help you get out of trouble before the judge. That would kind of define paracletus, to come near. It's also used of the Holy Spirit in John 14, 16. Jesus said, I will pray the Father that he will send you another helper, a paracletus, that he may abide with you forever. And there is no better advocate than Jesus, who paid the debt of our sin upon the cross. He's also the, our propitiation. Hilosmos is the Greek word for that. It merely means a covering. He is our covering. 1 John 2, 2, for he himself is our propitiation. Hilosmos. Our propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but for the whole world. And so that Hilasmas in the Greek, it means to appease, to cover. Atonement, and I like to break down that word atonement, to break it down into three syllables, at one meant. Because of Jesus Christ, we are at one with God. 
when they translated the Old Testament into the Koine Greek, the Septuagint as we know it, when they came to the covering of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, that term for mercy seat, they termed it hilasmas, a covering. Because the covering of the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark was a box with no top. The Ark was a, a box with a bottom and four sides that held the Ten Commandments in it. But without the covering, anyone who was look into that box, they would be exposed to the law of God with no mercy, no covering. The men of Beth Shemesh learned this after the Ark had been captured, ended up with the Philistines. The Philistines realized that they needed to get rid of the Ark because it was only causing them trouble. They sent the ark from to city to city, their great Philistine cities at that time. And they discovered that everywhere the ark went meant certain sickness and death for them. And they said, we have to get rid of this thing. And so they built a new cart and they put it on a cart. They put cows in front of it, oxen that had never carried any burden. They said in their minds, they said, if it heads back to Israel, we know that this is of God, the judgment that has come upon us. If the cows just kind of stay in the area, we know that it wasn't of Israel's God. And the oxen carried the ark back to the city of Beth Shemesh. They were in Israel. I believe the men of Israel opened the ark, maybe just wanting to see, are the Ten Commandments still there? Is the rod, Aaron's rod that budded still in the box, is the jar of manna still there? Maybe they were just curious. Did they send back an empty box? But they opened it up, and the Bible tells us that the Lord struck them, and 50,070 men died because they removed what? The hilasmas, the mercy, the propitiation. They found that with no mercy, with no covering, all they saw was the judgment of God, and it cost them their lives. Jesus has become that mercy for us. He stands between us and our holy God. In 1 John 4.10, it says, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. And there is no better advocate, there is no better propitiation than Jesus Christ our Lord. We are covered by the blood of Christ for those who come to faith in Jesus Christ. So in 15 and 16, it tells us the man departed, told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. And for this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus, sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Personally, I believe that the man was not trying to get Jesus in trouble. If you've been sick for 38 years and suddenly you're healed both physically and spiritually, wouldn't you want to tell somebody about it? Hey, I've been made whole. I've been made whole. My body has been strengthened. I've been forgiven of sin. Shouldn't you want to tell others what Jesus has done for you? And maybe that's all he wanted to do. It was Jesus. Celebrate with me. And the religious rulers like, we can't celebrate. He's a lawbreaker. In fact, this is a turning point 
From then on, the religious rulers sought to kill Jesus. They went from worrying about Jesus, this teacher that's been hanging around and troubling them for a year now. Now they're seeking to kill him. And six times we will discover that Jesus contended with the religious rulers because of his doing works on the Sabbath. Jewish law identified 39 categories, activities that were prohibited on the Sabbath. God simply said, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. For God created the heavens and the earth in six day and rested on the seventh day. So too, we are to rest on the seventh day. We should be grateful for that. But they had taken the law, a day that was meant to be a day of rest and celebration of worship with God, and they had made it a day of burdens. In fact, written in Shabbat 22.5, when it came to healing, they said, they may not set a fracture. If someone's hand or foot is dislocated, he may pour cool, cool water over it, but he may wash it in the usual way. No special washing. Pour some water over it, wash it as a normal, usual way. If it heals, it heals. Tough luck, buddy. You dislocated your shoulder. Pour some water over it. If it gets back in place, fine. But we can't do anything for you until the next day. You just walk around with a bum shoulder hurting all day. Don't pop it back in place. Obviously, they knew how to pop a dislocated joint back in place. But that would be considered work. If someone was injured on the Sabbath, they were only allowed to stabilize the person, and they had to wait until the Sabbath was over to actually administer healing acts. So all they could do is stabilize, and you have to wait till Sunday morning. In Mark 7 9 Jesus said all too well you reject the commandments of God that you may keep your traditions and they their man-made traditions made act of healing on the Sabbath unlawful when it was more tradition than the word of God it's just what had grown from the word of God all the man knew that it was Jesus who made him whole both physically and spiritually therefore it was no surprise no surprise to me that he'd wanted to share with others what Jesus had done for him much like the blind man who after he was healed in John chapter 9 being questioned by the religious rulers about Jesus they questioned the blind man about Jesus whether Jesus was a sinner or not and the man responded to the religious rulers in John 9:25 he said whether he is a sinner or not i do not know one thing i know that though i was blind now i see i'm sure this man would come to know the truth concerning Jesus at that point in his life all he knew is i can see I was born blind, and now I can see. But the religious rulers, all they could do was seek to trap Jesus, wanting to kill Jesus. And it should be even to this day, whether people will believe in Jesus or not, we should tell others what Jesus has done for us. We should share Christ with others. We should not be ashamed. 
They want to make us ashamed today. They want to make us not be bold in our faith. Workplaces may try to shut us down in sharing. I, I hope where I work, I'll have no problem sharing Christ. But don't they have problems with churches sharing the truth of the gospel today? And there are many pastors who are afraid to teach the whole counsel of God's word because it goes against maybe the social narrative of our day today. We'll discover that the social narrative of our day is ever-changing. It will never be the same. It will be like that man who fled from a lion to meet a bear and to get into his house, to lean on the wall, to be bitten by a snake. Our world, the condition of our world will ever be changing, but God's word never changes. We can always rely upon it. We can always stand upon it. So now they confront Jesus. And Jesus is there. Verse 17 through 23, the context, I'll read it for us once again. And this will be all that we look at today. And Jesus said to the Jews... For this reason, well, it tells us first, for this reason, the Jews, I already read this. I'll read it again. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now, and I've been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also because God was his making God his father or being equal with God. And Jesus answered and said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, the son can only, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him even greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he wills. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So here Jesus, he's already did great work through the healing of this man who has had this infirmity for 38 years, now he's going to share with them of a coming greater works. Jesus now contending with the religious rulers. He's answering them. My father has been working until now. The Bible tells us in Genesis 2, 3, that after Jesus, God created the heavens and the earth, that he rested from all his work of which he has created and made. God rested on the seventh day, as we know, according to the word of God. He rested from his work of creation, but he didn't stop working. Just think about our world if God would take one day off. We would be, if we survive even one day without God, the world would go into chaos every seventh day. Jesus said, God the Father and God the Son, they continue to work, continue to watch over the the creation. Chronicles 1, 16 and 17. For by him all things were created that were in heaven and on the earth, invisible and 
visible, whether thrones or dominions, principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. That's what I wanted to get to. In him all things consist. Jesus is always working. God is always working. Now they desired Jesus' death, not only because he healed on the Sabbath, but now he equated himself to God. And John lets us know that Jesus is God in his gospel. In John 1, 3, he says, all things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made. He's talking about Jesus when he said that, wrote that in John chapter 1, verse 3. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made. Jesus Christ was both fully human and fully God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory full of grace and truth. John 1, 14. It's... The word incarnation, it speaks about the dual nature of Christ. That's a Latin word that means, literally means in flesh. God in flesh. But Jesus responded like father, like son. What a perfect portion of a Father's Day message. I didn't give you a Father's Day message because, frankly, I normally do. But with a wedding planning, so making our lives busy over the last couple of months I forgot to do a Mother's Day message so I wasn't going to rip off the moms <laughs> by giving a Father's Day message so I figured I'll just do what I did on Mother's Day teach where I was going to be in the Word of God but here's a little bit of Father's Day put in here inserted for us I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do. How important fathers are. To be a guide, grandfathers as well, to their children, especially for their sons. That we would show our children how we ought to walk and to please God. You know that your kids are watching you. You're a dad, you know. Kids are watching you. Several years ago, we were over in Hawaii where our kids live, John and Catherine and Ayana, our son, John, his wife, Catherine, our granddaughter, Ayana. And Catherine was taking a picture of Lily and I and probably John. I don't know who was in that picture at that time, but it's her comment that caught me off guard. She said, you raise your eyebrows. She said, it took me years to get John to stop raising his eyebrows when I take a picture because it looks unnatural. <laughs> now, people who know me, that basically I have little slits as eyes. Sometimes I'm just trying to look like my eyes aren't shut in the picture. So I kind of try to raise them up a little bit to open my eyes. But... Little did I know that my son had acquired that useless habit from me. <laughs> like father, like son. What's dad do when he takes a picture? <laughs> Raise his eyebrows. Worthless habit. They'll pick those things up. Let's strive, men, to do our best to let them pick up good things that we do as well. 
like the study of God's Word, like living for Christ, like being the same in our church home or in the community, in a family situation, being the same as we are in our homes. They wanted to condemn Jesus now for two things, for healing on the Sabbath and equating himself with God. And Jesus would later testify in John 14, 10 and 11, do not believe that I am the that I am in the Father and the Father in me. And the words that I speak to you, I do not speak in my own authority, but what the Father who dwells in me, he does the work. Believe me that I am in the Father, the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Believe me for the sake of the works. What did Jesus do? He healed a man on the Sabbath, a man who had been sick for 38 years. But then he said greater works. In verses 20 and 21, For the Father loves the Son, shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Jesus is unlike any who came before him or after him. He is the unique Son of God. Second Peter 1.17 tells us, He received from God the Father honor and glory, when such a voice came to him from the excellence of glory, saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Second Peter 1.17 God not only loved his Son, Jesus, loves him, but loves us as well, as seen through his sending Jesus. In Romans 5.8 it tells us, But God demonstrates... His own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrates his great love toward us through sending his son Jesus to be that advocate, to be that propitiation, to be that covering. In John 3.16, we know that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What will these greater works be? Well, the resurrection of the dead, verse 21. For as my father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the son gives life to whom he will. So in the Old Testament, we learn of three people who were resurrected back from the dead. There's a widow of Zarephath, and Elijah brought back her son, and then Elijah brought back the son of a Shunammite woman. And then a man who was killed in battle was buried in the tomb of Elijah. And when he hit the bones of Elijah, he came back. Even when Elijah was dead, God was still working miracles in his life. Now, I just want to warn you guys. This is something that I know you guys aren't doing. But there is a thing that's going through the church today called grave soaking where there are people going to famous Christians of past who have died. Let's just say the founder of Calvary Chapel, Pastor Chuck Smith. Maybe this has happened. It shouldn't happen. But they'll go and they'll lay on those graves wanting to soak in the afterglow of the work of the Holy Spirit that was in that individual. You don't have to go to any graveyard and lay on a tomb. The Spirit of God is available to all who walk 
in the Lord, but maybe they get that whole grave soaking from this little event from Elijah where his bones brought someone back to life. Don't do that. That's ridiculous to do. Just look to Jesus for your hope, not to man and not to a dead man or a dead woman. Look to Jesus. Look to life. And though God had given us physical life, true life comes to him. He wants to give us spiritual life as well. In John 17, too, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Jesus Christ has given us physical life. He wants to give us spiritual life. So the Father judges no one. Jesus said he has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son. If they don't honor the Son, they do not honor the Father who sent him. We will all stand before the Lord Jesus Christ either at the Bema Seat Judgment or the Great White Throne Judgment. The Bema Seat Judgment is for believers. It's a place of reward. But the Great White Throne Judgment is for unbelievers. And it's a place of punishment and ultimately the second death. We serve a just and righteous God who rightly judges all things. In Isaiah 33:22 it tells us, tells us, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, and he will save us. And the only way that we can truly honor God the Father is by honoring his Son, Jesus Christ. And it is through believing in Jesus, his work upon the cross, that we obtain everlasting life. And the salvation of our soul through faith in Jesus Christ is truly one of these greater works. Ultimately, perhaps Jesus himself and the resurrection from the dead. I'd mentioned in the Old Testament that they referred to three people being resurrected back to life in the Old Testament. In the Gospels, we'll learn of three people that Jesus brings back to life in the New Testament Gospels. But he gives life to all who will accept him, spiritual life, through Jesus Christ. I hope you have that life today. Perhaps today Jesus is asking, do you want to be made well? And maybe in the back of your mind, all you've been doing is offering the Lord excuses. And all the Lord did was ask a question. Maybe you've realized that there have been those seasons where the Lord has sought you out. You hadn't even been seeking Jesus out, but he sought you, he found you, and he touched you in a special way. Perhaps now you realize that you should be celebrating the touch of Jesus in your life, letting others know the work that Jesus has done for you. So, Father, we ask that you would be with us as we close out this time of worship, as we wait upon you in this one last song. If there's someone here today, Lord, that you've been speaking to their heart, you have said something, perhaps like, do you want to be made whole? And they realize, Lord, all they've been offering you is excuses. Maybe today, Lord, they'll lay down those excuses and just come and kneel at the prayer benches, come and pray with Pastor Kevin. But Lord, just to surrender all to you. Help us now, Lord, in this time of waiting upon you. May your spirit work in our midst. We pray in the 
precious name of jesus amen.